0: With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson.
1: Good morning and thank you for joining us today on the Agnet News Hour. Coming up later, Farm Action's top 2024 priorities and new plant smart feeds are coming soon to California dairies. Two cases argued before the US Supreme Court last week could have an impact on America's farmers. Chad Smith tells us the cases addressed a legal principle called Chevron defense.
2: The Supreme Court heard arguments against Chevron deference this week, the legal test for when federal courts must defer to a government agency's interpretation of a law. Travis Cushman, American Farm Bureau Federation Deputy General Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy, explains. Chevron
3: deference is a judge-created rule about 40 years ago that basically tells judges Not to decide hard questions of law, but to defer to federal agencies. As a result, what this basically does is it takes power away from Congress, away from the judges, and creates a super branch of government headed in these executive branch administrative agencies.
2: Cushman says Chevron deference has fundamentally changed the government impacting agriculture.
3: Every agency we work with as a result of this has tried to attempt to enlarge their power beyond what Congress contemplated. For example, WOTUS, of the United States, over the past several decades, EPA and Army Corps continue to draft rules that are clearly outside of what Congress intended. And lower courts will keep on deferring to agencies saying, oh, yeah, this, this WOTUS rule is good. And it's not until so we get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has to say, no, actually, this rule isn't good. So it empowered the EPA and Army Corps to put out WOTUS rules that eventually get overturned, but we get stuck with them for many years.
2: The Supreme Court is evaluating whether to keep Chevron deference. The
3: court heard two cases that were challenging it. Uh, it was very exciting to be there. At the very least, it seems that all judges agreed that Chevron is not workable as it is today, and I'm hopeful that they'll we'll get a majority to flat out get rid of the doctrine, which would return much more power to Congress and to the judiciary and put agencies back in, in the original function of just enforcing the law.
2: Chad Smith, Washington.
1: USDA is once again accepting applications for continuous conservation reserve programs. Gary Crawford has more. The year is 1985.
4: Thank you all for the Herculean effort on behalf of America's farmers.
1: Then President
5: Ronald Reagan signs the Farm Bill creating the Conservation Reserve Program.
4: What this program does is make it possible for farmers to take marginal land out of production so that you don't have erosion. In
6: 1985, I was probably in the 12th grade
5: And now in 2024, this man is helping run the Conservation Reserve Program, Zach Ducheneau, administrator of USDA's Farm Service Agency and SCRP, still going strong with lots of programs beyond the original idea of taking land out of production on a large scale. For years, producers had to wait for as long as a year for USDA to have a general sign-up availability for CRP. Today, there are CRP programs with continuous sign-up available, although we had a brief hiatus last fall when the 2018 Farm Bill expired and CRP sign-up had to stop. Luckily, Lawmakers have authorized a one-year extension of the bill, so Zach says things are up and running again, and he announced last week that USDA is once again accepting offers from producers for the continuous conservation reserve program, such as the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program. Congress has set, though, a top acreage limit nationally for CRP, 27 million acres.
6: Because we are so close to the targets for conservation that the administration has set, and that are in the farm bill. We're gonna do this a little different this year in that we are gonna batch these applications and consider them periodically over the course of the year so that we make sure that we do not get outside of our statutory limit with
5: enrollment. So just in case Zach says it's best for producers to contact their local farm service agency office for program details.
6: And in order to make sure that all of the processes are done in time to start conservation measures on October 1st, people should have their applications fully submitted by July 31st of 2024. Gives us the time we need to get
7: everything in the queue.
5: Under this sign-up, producers can enroll new land in the CRP or re-enroll land whose CRP contracts expire this year. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
1: Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have our statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be right back. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. For today's national spotlight, we go to Chuck Zimmerman with this interview.
8: I'm at the Beltwide Cotton Conferences, and I'm visiting with uh, Tim Dabbert with Bayer. And first of all, Tim, tell us what you do for Bayer.
0: So uh, I'm the market development manager for cotton um, for for Bayer, so I work on all the new cotton traits and new cotton ag systems.
8: Well, one of the things that you were able to talk about here and give us a... kind of a, a review of some of the work that's been done is with Thrive On. So tell us a little bit, first of all, about this trait. Um, you know, What's the purpose? How's it going? And then we'll delve into
0: some of your uh, statistics you got. Yeah, so, so Thrive On's our first um, yeah. biotechnology trait that's geared mainly for our key protection against key tarnished plant bug and thrip species. So it allows... Um, growers to reduce the amount of insecticides that may be needed to to spray for thrips, and then later in the season um, has potential to reduce insecticides for tartish plant bugs as well.
8: How well has this performed and um, what have you found in terms of results in some of the areas you've tested?
0: Yeah, so the trait is performing very well as expected for the last, um, so we commercialized it in 23. We did some initial stewardship testing in 22 and some of the data that we've collected from that, the trait is working phenomenal. It's doing exactly what we, the growers are really excited about the thrips component because um, it is pretty much eliminating sprays um, for thrips. Uh, and then later in the season, like I said, with tarnished plant bugs, you know they're seeing you know, that kind of extra benefit of it. It doesn't—it's not going to eliminate all sprays for tarnished plant bugs, but it gives them another tool in their toolbox to tackle the tarnished plant bug problem.
8: So, uh, what would you say to cotton farmers at this point, looking forward? What should be they be thinking about? Uh, in those areas that have a real problem with thrips.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's really what we tell them is this is another tool for them to use, right? We're starting to see a lot of insecticide resistance, especially in thrips, you know, acetate resistance in, the, in Tennessee. We're starting to see that again in North Carolina. This is another tool that growers can use. Um, it's built in. You know, they don't have to worry about, it, you know, insecticides ro- rain, are washing off. They don't have to worry about stopping a plant to go back and spray their first planted stuff for, for thrips. Um, So it's kind of that built-in component that's really allowing them um, to to be more successful on their farm. So we've kind of been telling growers this is another tool. Really try it. Really explore it. Um, And and what we've seen is growers are really, really happy with the performance of the trait.
8: This is um, geographical where it is needed the most, but you've tried in some other areas too. Uh, Has that shown that that would have any benefit in some other areas?
0: The biggest benefits going to be the Mid-South, mainly because we we got, we got uh, thrips and plant bugs, right? But we're starting to see in, in emerging plant bug areas like Georgia, Alabama, you know, this technology is starting to gain a lot of traction, right? It's got thrips, it's got plant bugs, um, even in North Carolina, where you know, people don't understand that they have a plant bug problem, but now that they're seeing Thriveon come in there and saying, oh man, this thing is really doing much better than the other, my other B3XFs, it's probably because of those plant bugs. So it's, it's one of those things. It's kind of almost like an insurance policy that they're seeing.
8: All right, Tim, thanks for uh, visiting with me here, and great to see you again. Here from the Beltwide Cotton Conferences, I'm Chuck Zimmerman.
1: That's today's National Spotlight. For today's Livestock Report, we go to Hunter Ehrman with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association.
9: Today we're coming to you from Nebraska, where we're visiting with Barb Cooksley of Cooksley Ranch in the Nebraska Sandhills. Barb, thanks so much for being with us today. Tell me a little bit more about your operation. Hunter, thanks you
10: for coming out here. Well, first off, we are a family operation. Like so many folks in agriculture, Uh, my husband George and I are fourth generation. We have one of our nephews and his family in the yard with us, and we have another young family in their 20s. Their second baby's due in August, so we're very much a family-oriented operation. Uh, We're commercial cow-calf producers in the Sandhills and just enjoying uh, the cattle business right now.
9: Well, Barb, cattle producers have certainly seen a major victory on Waters of the U.S., or WOTUS, and I know we've talked with you a little bit about this before. Tell me a little bit more about how the Supreme Court case in Sackett versus EPA is going to help you as a producer.
10: As a producer, uh, watching how this was beginning to unfold, it was more than just impacting folks in agriculture when you think the Sackets were trying to build a home. And in the Sandhills, we have wetlands that come and go in wet cycles, depressions that might hold water after a rain. If we as a landowner, wanted to build a fence, do a cross fence that would help us with our rotational grazing. We didn't know with WOTUS, as it expanded, if we would have to get a permit to even put a fence through uh, a potential waters of the U.S. So we were very happy to see this. Uh, Many years ago, I remember when it was When you talked about wetlands or waters of the U.S., it had to be a navigable stream. You had to have uh, a bed and bank definition. It wasn't just every puddle or pond, uh, whether they were connected or not. So very uh, good news on WOTUS.
9: Barb, Congress is currently working to craft the 2023 Farm Bill. What would you like to see in this next Farm Bill?
10: In the next Farm Bill, I think it would be good for Congress and the lawmakers Uh, agencies to put less in the farm bill. Let's look at what we have, what's working, what can we simplify, what can we make more flexible. You know, an overall up and down review. There are so many programs out there I would like to see less and use them more effectively. Make sure that whatever we have out there, is it working? Is it fully funded? We definitely, in the livestock industry, we want to um, make sure that our vaccine bank is funded. Let's prioritize and get those correct.
9: You know, Barb, I know uh, Cooksley Ranch has made sustainability a top focus here. And sustainability is, of course, a top focus for the industry as a whole. What would you tell folks who are unfamiliar with the cattle industry about what you do to keep your operation sustainable?
10: In the Sandhills and on our ranch, sustainability is using with what nature gives us. Staying within those parameters. When we get dry, we sell off some of our livestock because we not only have to feed the livestock, we are responsible for taking care of the wildlife that was here. And recently, we've had a wildfire go through. We are now very careful in how we will use those pastures after the burn. But because the sandhills were formed under fire, we're going to work with the grasses as they recover, which they will. But we have to work within their time frame and what the weather gives us. So to us, sustainability is using what we're given at that time and then planning ahead and trying to be adaptable.
1: This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Hulverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Hulverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director, Brian German.
11: American Pistachio Growers is shifting its efforts under new leadership. APG Interim President Joel Nelson said as they move forward with some new approaches, the number one focus continues to be supporting growers.
4: We're still focused mainly on marketing, helping the industry expand its base for selling product. You know, 60% of our tonnage does go to Europe. The domestic market is obviously very important, but we've got to enhance our GR efforts, government relations on behalf of the industry. We're going to be doing that. The team, the individuals, they're sharp individuals. I really have enjoyed getting to know them. They've got to function better together, and I think I can help them do that the combination of our communications our marketing our government relations program the whole idea is to do a better job in getting a net return per acre for the grower and that's where it's at they give us you know x pennies per pound and we got to make sure that they're getting a heck of a lot more on net revenue per acre for that investment
11: farm action has outlined its top priorities for 2024 aiming to advocate for significant reforms in the food system The organization plans to push Congress for a fair farm bill, urging reforms in checkoff programs, support for specialty crop growers, fair credit access, crop insurance reform, and exclusion of the EATS Act and reference price increases. Another focus is encouraging USDA to address labeling concerns, emphasizing the importance of accurate labeling for meat and poultry products. Farm Actions also supporting farmers' right to repair their equipment and calling for stronger enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act, addressing issues of discrimination and retaliation in the meatpacking industry. Additionally, the organization plans to fight anti-competitive mergers, encouraging FTC to ban non-compete clauses, and endorsing legislation to help support the preservation of farmland. Growers have an opportunity to learn more about the specific benefits afforded by soil health management practices through resources available from the Soil Health Institute. Interviews that are conducted to develop an economic study to illustrate how a grower's net farm income is affected when adopting soil health management practices. Soil health educator with the Soil Health Institute, Jessica Kelton, said that the interviews that are conducted help to serve two purposes. Creating an aggregate look at individual states or regions and how soil health practices are impacting a farmer's bottom line and to provide individual growers with a detailed report.
10: A lot of times you hear the growers say, yeah, I know I'm saving money or this is making me money, but have never put pen to paper to understand to what degree they're actually changed their bottom line. So they do get that report back. So they're helping to provide a resource to other growers, but they're also able to evaluate how that's impacted their financial situation by using those practices.
11: California dairy farmers are adopting innovative solutions to enhance sustainability and reduce environmental impact. Forever Feed Technologies, backed by a multi-million dollar investment, is developing automated indoor growing feed mills that produce sprouted grains requiring 95% less water than traditional crops. The system involves on-farm buildings with stacked trays where high-quality wheat can grow in just five days. The approach aims to address water scarcity concerns and reduce environmental footprint of dairy farming. Additionally, tech company Fido is working on a nutrient-to-feed solution using floating plants grown in lined aquatic rows. The project, funded by the California Department of Food and Agriculture, aims to provide a high-protein dairy feed ingredient while minimizing nutrient leaching and water usage. Both initiatives showcase the dairy industry's commitment to sustainable practices. The annual strawberry Production Research Meeting is going to be held online via Zoom on Wednesday, February 14th. UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor for Strawberries and Caneberries, Mark Bolda, said that they will be discussing some of the major problems for the industry, including topics such as ligus management, biological control of spotted wing Drosophila, and new varieties with resistance to soil diseases.
2: Not just Stephen Knapp with his resistance, but we have Yu Chen Wang. She'll be talking about some of the pathogens she's encountered in the last year, and then also Peter Henry talking about, again, that very soil pathogen. I got Nick LeBlanc, too, from the USDA talking about biological fungicides. Some work we did together this past year, and that's amongst others. There's about three or four others as well. It's a good program. There's a lot of new material on here. I encourage people to attend, and it will be translated into Spanish. So those who would want to hear it in Spanish, I have the translation as well.
11: I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network.
1: Welcome back. Land-grant universities continue to struggle with funding. Now a major university dairy research barn is closing. Back in April, the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities and 340 national, regional, and state agriculture, food, and forestry stakeholder groups sent a letter to congressional leadership urging the House and Senate Agriculture Committee leaders to fund the Research Facilities Act in the 2023 Farm Bill. That farm bill, of course, was not passed in 2023, and that funding remains hanging in the balance. As Rusty Halverson reports, one school that really needed that funding is having to shut down its dairy research.
12: The news is out that the dairy research and training facility at South Dakota State University will close by the end of June. Milk from the facility is used to make the popular jackrabbit ice cream and cheese from SDSU. University officials are trying to reassure the public that the ice cream will still be available and students can still major in dairy manufacturing and dairy production at SDSU. Dr. Joe Cassidy is the South Dakota Corn Endowed Dean of the College of Agriculture, Food and Environmental Sciences at SDSU. He says this was a very difficult decision, but the dairy barns were simply outdated.
6: Over the last several years, it's been recognized that our dairy um, was very outdated. Um, The parlor and the freestall barn were built. uh, Construction was completed, I believe, in 1994, so they're now 30 years old, and that was the newest parts of the dairy. Um, The other parts, housing dry cows and and replacement females and that type of thing, the heifer Development Facilities, are from the 1960s. And so uh, we have a rapidly growing, um, very modern dairy industry in the state. And these facilities just in no way represented um, the modern industry in the state of South Dakota.
12: Cassidy says an effort was made to make plans for a new dairy to replace the older facilities, but it did not materialize.
6: The legislature appropriated $7.5 million pending matching funds in 2021 towards the construction of a new dairy. So, we had a spending authority of 15 million. Unfortunately, we're unsuccessful in designing uh, a farm and building project that would meet our needs that were within our spending authority. And um, it did not appear that we would be able to raise the additional capital necessary to execute a project if the spending authority were to be increased by the legislature. And so, it was decided to discontinue plans for a new um, dairy farm Um, by statute that 7.5 million that had been um, appropriated goes back to the the legislature. And um, then we had to take a hard look at our existing dairy, um, which obviously needs to be replaced. That's why we were planning to build a new one. And um, unfortunately, we've made the hard decision that it's not, um, not viable to continue. And so Um, operations will cease in June Um, on the other hand for our students we have a number of really modern high-quality dairies um, within a few miles of Brookings that we have good working relationships with that we already take students out to at various different times for class exercises and we're looking forward to working with them to create a good learning opportunity for our students in modern, uh, well-run dairies.
12: A fire at the facilities in 2022 and a derecho windstorm the same year did not help matters.
6: Well, we were successful in, um, making all the repairs from the fire. And then, um, so the fire was in February of uh, 2022. And then in May, uh, the derecho did, um, substantial further damage. All the, um, Repairs from the fire and the ratio have been made. Um, but those um, those challenges did highlight, in some ways the, um, you know, the age of the facility and some of the vulnerabilities of the facility.
12: Future plans are being discussed with employees and students affected by the closure.
6: We do not anticipate um, um, anybody losing their job, obviously. Um, There are workers, uh, there are two full-time employees at the unit that um, um, we will enter into discussions with about what other opportunities there are for them within the university system. Um, There are about 20 undergrads that had been working at the the farm. Um, Only one of those, as I understand it, was majoring in the dairy and food science department. Uh, Some of the others may have been seeking a minor. But um, for the most part, um, the students working at the dairy um, were not our dairy and um, food science majors.
12: Cassidy says the university intends to maintain majors in dairy manufacturing and dairy production, and no other programs are slated for changes.
6: The change to dairy production is that we, um, again, hope to expand on our existing partnerships with local dairies, um, to meet the educational needs of that program and, in fact, provide uh, an even better experience because those, um, those are modern uh, dairies. And uh, there are no discussions at this time or um, considerations of, of reducing other programs. Um, there is and has been for some time a challenge um, nationwide to um, continue to support and fund the ag facilities at our land-grant institutions. Um, There's plenty of discussions about that on the federal level, and uh, it is an ongoing challenge for all land-grant universities, but there are no um, discussions nor plans of cutting or reducing other programs. And in fact, uh, we're not cutting any programs. Um, We are keeping our dairy production major, we're just going to use a different model to meeting the needs of that major.
12: Specific plans for how the dairy animals will be dispersed have not yet been finalized.
6: Those events will happen consistent with the, um, the rules and regulations of the state um, that we operate under. But um, we do plan to begin um, here in the coming months uh, selling off some of the, the younger animals, the ones that haven't reached lactation stage yet. Um, I don't believe we'll be selling any of the lactating animals until after the uh, semester, spring semester is over. Um, And by then we will have a plan in place as to how those animals will be liquidated.
12: The university's dairy herd produced milk used by the SDSU Davis Dairy Plant to make ice cream and cheese. Cassidy says consumers won't see any changes. Uh, I
6: can assure them we will continue to make jackrabbit ice cream and cheese and uh, and all of our other products. Um, our dairy manufacturing um, program will continue, both the teaching and the research. Um, the one change will be we have traditionally sourced our milk from the um, the dairy farm, the SCSU dairy farm, and um, we will need to source that milk um, from another provider, but. Um, the dairy plant the davis dairy plant was paying the commercial milk price to our sdsu dairy and so we're not anticipating any economic negative impact on the davis dairy
12: plant and cassidy says he appreciates the connection that many people feel for the sdsu dairy barns
6: i i just think it's really important that um i appreciate the passion there is for our dairy industry we recognize the importance of the dairy industry Um, change is often uh, difficult, but we are confident we can develop a um, different model for meeting the needs of the students and provide them with a really high quality education by partnering with our dairy
12: partners. That's Dr. Jill Cassidy, South Dakota Corn Endowed, Dean of the College of Agriculture, Food, and Environmental Sciences at South Dakota State University. I'm Rusty Halverson.
1: This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Here's Chuck Zimmerman once again.
8: I'm visiting with Mark Kitt with Syngenta. And first of all, Mark, tell us what you, what you do. Yeah, Chuck. Uh, Mark Kitt,
13: I am the technical product lead for corn herbicides with Syngenta. So basically, my role involves uh, uh, writing the labels for our corn herbicides, doing the field work. Uh, to bring the products to market and uh, deliver it for solutions for our customers. Really, in general, we're most concerned about uh, bringing innovative solutions to our Syngenta growers, or growers in general.
8: Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, things that are relatively new, storing uh, a herbicide that's really got a lot of attention to what else right now would be kind of top of mind for growers with some of your newer products.
13: Yeah, Chuck, you mentioned Storin. So Storin is a recent uh, product that we added to the Syngenta corn portfolio. Uh, It it contains four active ingredients, and one of the key things about Storin is uh, looking at the trial research versus other competitive products. It is much more consistent in controlling a broad spectrum of weeds versus a lot of the current Competitive corn herbicides on the market. And Storin provides some excellent uh, application flexibility. You can put it out 21 days uh, prior to planting corn, and then you can apply it all the way up to the V8 corn stage. And the other key thing about Storin is its length of residual control. Going back to some of the work we've done comparing against competitive products. It really provides up to three weeks longer residual control, keeping that weed control above 90% control level, and that gets you to that canopy closure to protect your crop from yield-robbing weeds.
8: Well, we're, uh, what, at the end, I guess, of harvest season for this year, mm-hmm. for the most part, being this time of year. What are things that uh, your customers, farmers, uh, should be thinking about as they kind of wind down this? Well, one of the key
13: things as growers are you know running their combines through their fields regarding weed control is kind of take mind, uh, keep in mind where you're seeing emerged weeds, right? And this is part of an overall weed control integrated management strategy. You you don't want those weeds to go to seed and keep increasing the the weed soil seed bank. So back to kind of storing. If you keep those weeds in check with an excellent residual herbicide, it's really not a one-year investment. You keep those weeds in check, they don't go to seed, and then in subsequent crops, let's say you're the, rotating the soybeans, it's an investment in that crop as well, too. So you got to think a little more long-term about your weed management strategies than thinking about it year to year.
8: What's your take on uh, what this year's been like? How do you think overall it's looking? Well, there was a lot of dry
13: weather, right? And um, even though that the reports I'm getting from the field that yields are are pretty pretty darn good, right, uh, with the current dry weather. But it, it's key to keep in mind that don't change what you've been that had been working in the past the last three to four years because you had a uh, dry weather year. Keep using those residual herbicides, as I mentioned, to keep those weeds in check. It's a long term strategy on, on weed control.
8: Well, thank you, uh, Mark, for visiting with me here. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting.
1: This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be right back. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. Here's Brian German.
11: We're talking almonds again here today with BASF Tech Service Representative Jessica Sammler. And now we know the importance of bloom and uh, how it impacts the almond industry itself. Uh, But taking a a broader look at it here, Jessica, how does the success or failure of bloom uh, affect the overall market and and the economy at large, both uh, locally here, but uh, globally as well?
14: Yeah, absolutely. So no other country comes close to the U.S. and California for almond production. This state produces almost 80 percent of the world's almonds, and 30 percent of that stays here domestically for domestic consumption. But that leaves 70 percent that gets exported for global markets. So the success of our growers is absolutely paramount, of course, for our local economy. But then if we think from a global standpoint, the supply so various products that are produced from the almonds that we produce, the jobs that are connected to that. So all of the import-export jobs, um, all of those local workers who are using almonds to produce uh, various things. And then, you know, all of that feeds into the economics. So it's it's a really important crop. Um, and I think sometimes we always think of the local impacts. But it really is an exported global commodity that we produce here locally, so it has far-reaching impacts as well.
11: And now we've touched a bit on um, the importance of pollination and and pollinators during the bloom period. But as far as the trees individually uh, go, h- how can growers maybe best prepare soil and nutrients for their trees during almond bloom?
14: So it's really um, it's really important to have good high quality nutritional products, they're vital to tree health. Uh, I consider your nutrients are kind of your your tree's multivitamin, right? And so you want to have a good quality multivitamin. You want to make sure those trees are getting everything that they need. Going hand in hand with that dough, particularly at Bloom, your crop can also benefit um, from really strong fungicides um, like Maribond, like Pristine, that provide plant health benefits. Those aid in stress mitigation. So I equate those products almost to like the supplements that you take in addition to your multivitamins bloom is a major stress event for these trees and so anything that we can do that helps mitigate some of the stress that they're feeling and helps them perform to their highest potential is really important especially considering that almonds are a long-term crop it's you know we don't we don't get to rip them out and start over again next year like some of our row crops um, these growers are in it for the long haul so everything we can do to better prepare them uh, is really important.
11: I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network.
1: USDA recently awarded its latest round of Market Access Program and Foreign Market Development Program awards to assist organizations in opening and expanding global ag export markets. Rod Bain has more.
7: Investment in foreign market development and access for U.S. farm and food goods. That's behind the latest awards for ag organizations participating in USDA's Market Access Program, and foreign market development program. MAP and FMD are Farm Bill mandated programs. They are funded annually through competitive application process each year. We award these funds to industry partners. Chris Jacquette of the Foreign Agricultural Service says for fiscal year 2024, almost seventy nonprofit organizations and cooperatives will receive over one hundred seventy four million dollars through MAP while $27 million is allocated to 20 trade organizations under FMD. So they use these funds and they have developed a long-term strategy that these allocations are based upon. We're active all around the world depending on commodity and the need and available market. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
1: Ducks are supposed to waddle, but not your pet cat or dog. Gary Crawford reports on what some see as an epidemic of overweight pets.
5: There was a time when being fat was not considered a terrible thing. Some folks, like actor-comedian Victor Bruno, made money out of it. Here is a poem he wrote on fatness.
7: I'm fat. I'm fat. That's all there is to that. You might think it etiquette to say that I am heavy set or just big bone. You want a bear? I'm fat. I'm fat.
6: I'm
5: fat. And the problem is that being fat today is much more common with about 60% of us currently overweight. But you know what? It's not just people. It's pets.
15: Yes, we're seeing the same trend, 30 to 40% of animals are overweight, and you know, 20% or so are in that obese category.
5: <laughs> wow, that's Dr. Susan Nelson, a veterinarian and professor at Kansas State University, and she says there's definitely a correlation here between more of us being overweight and our pets.
15: Yeah, my personal belief, yes, there's a big connection. Um, kind of just like us, there's a lot of palatable foods out there, and fat usually makes them more palatable, and so we like to eat them less exercise we just have less time for exercise so the dogs don't get to go out for the walks as often with their owners and so they're laying around the house watching tv while the owners are too and usually snacking
5: oh and the pounds start to come on both pets and owners but most of us don't notice what's happening to our dog or cat i
15: I think it kind of sneaks up on people. You know, you're with your pet every day. You just don't really realize it.
5: Sometimes not until there's an obvious problem of some sort. And indeed, just as with people, Dr. Nelson says being overweight's not a good thing for a pet either.
15: Cats and dogs, we see overweight animals have more problems with their arthritis so with joints. A lot of times if we can get that weight off, that helps them a lot and less dependency on medications to treat their arthritis. We also see, especially in cats, it predisposes them more to diabetes. A lot of the overweight cats are more prone to that. And the same will go with dogs. Obviously, for the really overweight animals, it's more of a stress on their cardiovascular system.
5: Dr. Nelson says if you've gained some unwanted pounds yourself, chances are your dog or cat has too. Here are some things to check on your pet to make sure that it's not overweight.
15: One is the amount of fat over the rib area. The other is, um, looking over from the top, they ought to have a waist, so their chest is a little wider. Then they go back to a waist, and then their hips are a little bit wider. And when you look from the side, they should have kind of a tummy tuck going up there. So they're kind of leveling out on that underside and you can't feel the ribs very easily. Those are some warning signs.
5: Dr. Nelson says taking a pet to the vet regularly will help you spot a problem sooner and do something about it because your pet is not likely to simply tell you...
7: I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat.
5: <laughs> what to do about a fat pet? Well, that's coming up in another report. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington.
1: That's today's Agriculture News. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us.
0: To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halbertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.